All right. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you uh, here at Mission Church, Carrieville. We're uh, glad you're here. If you're a guest, uh, what a Sunday you picked to, uh, to join us. We are thrilled that you're here. And uh, I heard that um, the Lord did not perform the miracle of making our classes larger uh, dimensions-wise uh, and uh, multiplying our books. So um, please do not interpret that. If you showed up and it was crowded, or if you showed up and we ran out of books, as that you are not welcome, uh, because you are more than welcome, and we've got more books on the way, and uh, we've got access to more chairs that we'll put in here and all those kind of things. So please, please, please do not interpret that as uh, you're not welcome here. We will make space uh, for you. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, keep coming back. We'll figure out the logistics of how we're going to fit people in rooms and all those kind of things. But um, we're excited for what's ahead. Um, Chris mentioned all the other announcements and things like that. So um, I don't feel the need to reiterate them much. Um, but just if you're a man, we got lunch on Thursday, worship night Friday. Uh, we have membership class tonight. Um, so if you've been around and thinking about, hey, I would love to hear what it means to be a member at this church. And let me clarify, um, it's not joining a country club. Um, it's not joining an organization. Um, church membership at its core is committing to a group of people. That's what it is. Um, the church isn't this building, it's this group of people um, who've committed to one another. So um, if you're remotely interested in learning what it would mean to commit to this family of believers and um, open up your lives to them and get to know them and carry burdens with them and pray with them and all of those kind of things um, to really be a part of this family is what it is. Um, you're welcome to come tonight and you can walk in uh, without letting us know. Just show up. We'd love to feed you dinner and uh, tell you more about our church and uh, all those things. So that's tonight. Wanted to make mention of that. Um, but let's dive into the text, and uh, I have to mention this. I promised Angela I'd mention this. If you're a um, young child in the room, these were outside of the auditorium as you walked in. Um, this is just a great um, opportunity for you to grab one of these, to draw in, to make notes in, to write things that you learn from the sermons in. Uh, we've made these available. If you did not get one, oh, you're holding yours up right there. I love it. Um, I have one. I'm not a child, so you can have mine if you didn't get one and you want one. I won't throw it, um, but I can set it down if somebody wants to come up here. Oh, you want it? Come on up here. You can have this one. Um, I won't be able to use it during this next couple minutes. So there you go, sir. Um, so those are available. Uh, I don't know the status. If we have more, yeah, Brent uh, has got some more over there. If you need one, um, he'd be happy to give one to your children um, so that they can. Uh, we got a hand over here. Um, so as he's doing that, um, we are going to dive into this text, and I've asked um, on the spot, uh, she was not prepared for this, but I asked Ms. Deborah Eaton if she would read our passage for the morning. So she's going to make her way up here, and uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 17 while she's walking up here and uh, kind of prepare your belongings to get ready to stand as we read uh, God's Word together. Um, she's going to read it for us, and then uh, I'll pray and uh, we'll dive in together. So Matthew 17 is where we're going to be. I'll go ahead and tell you, if you want to put a uh, bookmark or a finger into uh, Mark chapter 9, the same story is in both, and we're going to use both this morning. So um, if you want to make that available, you totally can. But we're going to read Matthew 17. I'm going to hand this to Miss Deborah. I don't know how happy she is with me right now, but if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, uh, she's going to read it for us. And then uh, do you want to hold this? Okay, and then uh, I'll pray for us. Thank you, Parker. 
When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire and into the water. I have brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Your unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say this to the mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, and then uh, you can have a seat. Father, we love you. Um, God, I just ask that you would move. Um, Father, we are not here to perform. We are not here to do anything um, but to sing your word, to preach your word, to read your word, to pray your word, and uh, God, ultimately see your word manifest in our hearts uh, for love for one another. Um, So God, I just pray um, that your spirit would move, um, that we would behold you in your word. Um, God, that you would illumine the truth to us as we walk through this passage together. And uh, ultimately, God, that you would be glorified, that we would be sanctified. And uh, ultimately, um, God, to that end, we pray um, that you get all the glory. Um, We get the benefit of uh, spending some time around your word and uh, being conformed into the image of your son. God, I pray for the children in this room, that there would be truths that they catch and grasp, um, even um, today. God, the the journey of them starting to to hear and learn um, from these sermons would begin at a young age. Um, God, I pray for the children in this room um, that they would come to know you at a young age um, and hearing the gospel week in and week out. Um, God, help us to be men and women of this body um, who pass on um, the gospel truths and the glorious um, scriptures um, to the next generation. Pray that we all feel that burden. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. And as you do that, um, anybody ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon, uh, does anybody know his nickname? Got quiet. Uh, He was uh, the Prince of Preachers. Uh, That was his nickname. And Charles Spurgeon is widely known as the greatest preacher aside from Jesus to ever live. Um, He was the pastor at London Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. And um, he, I mean, people would flock from all over the world, all over Europe, especially from the United States. People would flock from all over the world to come and to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. I mean, people by the thousands. And people would come to the church. They would want to hear him preach. They would want to see the tabernacle. They would want to, him to show them around. And he would do that. I mean, they would do tours. He would show everybody the church. They want to see the pulpit that he preached from, all those kind of things. And during these moments, at one point in having all of these people come, um, on a Sunday morning, Charles Spurgeon would say, hey, do you want to see the boiler room? And most people instantly thought, okay, he's going to take us down to the basement And, you know, there's probably a wood-burning fireplace or something or wood, you know, heat system going on. And he would take them down to the basement. And it was widely known that on a given Sunday, you would go down to the basement of his church and there would be 300 people praying in small groups. And he would point at that and he would say, this is where the heat comes from. This is the engine room of our church. This is the reason God does anything in our midst. 
because at, on any given Sunday, 300 men and women would gather in the basement of that church and pray for God to move. And I tell you that because this is why we're doing this series. Um, as we move into this new season, and we're not trying to make it any more than it is. We changed our name and all those kind of things. Uh, we still believe in the same God, preach the same gospel. Um, there's just a different sign on the doors, which we believe reflects um, the priorities of our church um, to take this gospel mission to uh, our families and to the ends of the earth and all of those things. Um, but the last thing we wanna do is start this next season and go through routine after routine, Sunday after Sunday. And if we do all of those things, we can labor, we can plan services, we can do all of the events. But if we don't have the spirit of God moving, if God's power does not work within us, then we do all of those things in vain. If we do not ask God and pray to God and beg to God and plead God to move in our midst, all of this is in vain. Because I, as a broken, sinful, finite human being, and you as well, we need to know that we have zero power whatsoever to call someone to move from death to life. We have zero power to, to force our children to understand the gospel. We have zero power to soften someone's heart to fix a marriage or fix a relationship. That apart from the, the power of God working, we can do nothing. And unless he builds the house, we labor in vain. So before we dive into Galatians, we want to take three weeks um, tentatively. I've got something I wanna do in the last week. I'll give you an update on that next week, I think. Um, but our hope is that we take three weeks and we talk about prayer in this series. We're gonna look at head, heart, and hands. We're gonna look at the heart and the why of prayer today. And then my hope is that before we dive into the book of Galatians, which will take us through July, because we wanna study it a verse at a time. Um, before we do that, I would love to do a sermon on how do you know that you can trust th the Bible? How do you know that the words you have in your hands are the words that Jesus said 2,000 years ago? How do you know that you can trust what's written here, right? Didn't King James take it or Constantine take it and change it all up and then King James took it and he did some, like, how do you know that you can trust what's in here, that what... Is, is written in this book is what Jesus actually said. Um, that's, Lord willing, our goal for um, the last Sunday of this month. So I hope that you at least remember that, make a note to join us for that. But today we're gonna talk about prayer because as I said, we don't have the, about, the ability to change a single heart, a single soul, fix a marriage, grow our kids up in the understanding of the gospel. Now God can use our means, but unless his power is working, then we do it in vain. So as we begin this new series, we wanna look at prayer. And as Deborah just read, um, this story, this encounter with Jesus is about prayer. And as I said, um, it's actually in Mark chapter nine as well. And Mark gives us some different details, not contradicting details. The, the stories line up perfectly, um, but we learn some different facets about this story in Mark. So you don't have to stand up again, but um, it'll be on the screen. If you wanna turn there, you can. I wanna read this account again, um, but using Mark's details, because we're gonna reference both of them during this sermon, and I'll let you know which one comes from where and all those kind of things. But in Mark chapter nine, um, it starts in verse 14. 
and it goes through verse 29. But I want you to see and see if you can pick up on some of the differences that we just, um, from the passage that we just read in Matthew 17. Um, but all of the details in both of these stories will be helpful for us today. And it says this, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them something we didn't see before. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, him being Jesus, and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his, fa or Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into a fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, and listen to these words, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, and here's a different detail from the first reading, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Fascinating. So it's important for us to look at both of these stories together. Mark tells us they were arguing. So you can imagine Jesus showing up. There's an argument going on between some of his disciples and scribes. And if you look at the story, um, verse 14 starts with, and when they came. So the first question is, who is they and where are they coming from? And why is this a big deal? The they there is if you look up before Mark chapter nine, verse 14, or Matthew 17, um, starting in verse 14 as well. If you look at the paragraph before, every time this story is mentioned, it comes right after the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, kind of the inner three of his 12 disciples. They go up to a mountain and Jesus is transfigured. He is white and Mark even tells us that he is um, whiter than anyone could ever bleach. And he is there and he sees Moses and Elijah and he begins to speak with them. And Peter, James, and John are just watching this moment. They watch Jesus turn stark white and he is talking with these Old Testament saints who had died hundreds of years ago, heroes of the faith. And he's speaking with them. And I love Mark's account because he says, Peter's standing there and he's, Peter says something to the effect of, this is a good thing. And then, uh, which is very Peter. And then he says, I guess, you know, we should build some tents. And then Mark adds, for Peter was terrified and did not know what to say, which is totally Peter, right? Um, sometimes you just have to laugh at Peter in the Bible. He doesn't know what to say. So he just starts talking. He's like, yeah, this, this is good. Uh, should we make some tents? And then by the time he says that, the other two are gone and Jesus is back and they head down the mountain. 
but very Peter. I love that. So when it says, when they came to the crowd, the they there is Jesus and Peter, James and John coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, why in the world would Luke, this account's also in Luke chapter nine, but Luke's is very short and doesn't give us a lot of details, so we're not gonna really look at it. But why in the world would Luke and Mark and Matthew all give us this story, and why in the world would it always come after the transfiguration? I think that is important for us to see. And it's connected to this passage, and we won't dive into that passage, but it, it, it shows up right after, because what we see here is we see the son of God on the mountain, and we see the son of this father in the valley. We see the son of God in glory, and we see the son of this human father in darkness. And you see the son of God with all power to save, and you see this son of this man who's powerless to save himself. And you get this picture of God in all of his glory on the mountain, and man lost and enslaved and trapped in darkness. And the beauty of the gospel is that God came down to take us, as scripture calls us, children of the darkness and make us children of light. Is that Jesus Christ did not wait for us to try to free ourselves, which we never could, to try to overcome our own sin, which we never can. He did not wait for us to be good enough, righteous enough, holy enough. The God in all of his glory stepped out of heaven and came down to rescue those that were in darkness. And we're about to watch that happen in this story which is beautiful for us to see. So they show up, they see the disciples and these other guys arguing and Mark tells us Jesus confronts them. And I love that. Hey, what are you arguing about? And it wasn't like a, hey, I'm curious or hey, I wanna argue with you. Um, this was a very combative statement. Like, hey, what are you arguing about with my followers? Jesus came to the defense of his children. And I love that. I want you to know this morning that Jesus is quick to come to your defense. If the enemy is telling you lies, if the enemy has is, is got a stronghold on you, the, the, the Lord longs to come to your defense. He longs to. He's not afraid of your problems. He's not afraid of your issues. He wants you to bring them to him. And he's quick to come to your aid. And he shows up, he says, hey, what are you arguing about? And then this man speaks up. And he says in Matthew 17, verse 15, he says, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And Mark's account tells us this was his only son and that this has been happening, these seizures have been happening since childhood. And just put ourselves in the story for a second. There's nothing more painful than watching one of your children suffer. That is a pain like no other. And you've got this father in the midst of this argument, as soon as Jesus gives him the opportunity, he instantly says, hey, here's why we're here. Here's what's going on. My son is hurting. He's having seizures. He's had it since he was a child. He's my only son. He's been suffering. You know, he is desperate. Comes to Jesus and says, here's what's going on. And I see, it, it, it's crazy to me to see just how evil the enemy is to attack a child from the time he was young. And he has the power to do that. And the only thing restraining him is the goodness of God in our lives. The fact that you and I are where we are is because of God's goodness and God's restraining power. The enemy can only do what God allows him to do. 
And the fact that we are where we are and none of us are absent of brokenness and struggle and trial and relationships are messy and broken and we all feel the effects of Genesis 3 in our lives. But the fact that you are where you are with your health, with your family, with your job is totally because of the kindness of God, the grace of God and his restraining power against the enemy in your life. From him and through him and to him are all things. So we can be grateful even in the midst of the brokenness for where God has us in our lives, even in the midst of the trial and the pain. And you see this man desperately running to Jesus in the midst of his pain. And he says this, he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. And that word have mercy in the Greek is actually an imperative. It's a command, which is weird for us to say that this man was commanding Jesus to do anything. Um, So it's often interpreted as this was a desperate plea. You're my only option. Lord, please do something. But it's in this demonstrative (coughs) imperative. Lord, please (coughs) heal my son. I knew that was gonna happen. And I thought this was kind of funny until you study the words of it. Um, the, uh, if you, anyone have the NASB in here? The translation of the Bible, anybody have the NASB? Um, yours might say, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. And I read that and I was like, that's every parent's prayer um, this week, right? Uh, have mercy on him, he is a, that was my dad's prayer on a weekly basis. Um, and the, the reason it's there is, says he's a lunatic and he's very ill. Um, the word lunar there um, is where we get the word moon. Uh, lunatic is, is lunar tick, it's, it's struck by the moon. Um, the Greek word that um, Matthew and Mark use when they wrote this is um, essentially a form of um, Selene is how we pronounce it in the English, but Selena. Um, if you know anything about Greek mythology, um, Selene was the Greek goddess of the moon. And the the reason he uses this word is because these seizures would happen at night. It was believed that these um, people trying to understand the world would would say that these children were were struck by the moon, that these seizures, that all of this stuff would happen during the night. Now, Romans eventually just used the Latin word luna, but it all means the same thing, that this man was trapped in darkness, his son was trapped in darkness, all of this stuff was happening at night, and... I would venture to say our lives aren't much different. Where are you most tempted to sin? Where does crime happen more frequently? Where are you more fatigued? Where are you more tempted to doubt, to lie, to stumble into temptation? It's usually once the sun goes down, isn't it? Every teenager in the room, this is why you have a curfew. Because you become lunatics when it gets dark. I was the same way, your parents were the same way. You're not any different. Um, We just want you to learn from our mistakes. But this is why he uses that word, because the best way they could try to explain it was they were struck by the moon. And at night, this boy, since he was a child, it doesn't say every night, it's in the present tense. um, So it means it happened repeatedly, but we have no idea if that happened every night, if it happened most nights, if it happened once a week, who knows? But since he was a child, one time is enough. And it's happening repeatedly since this boy was a child. And the father runs to him and says, Lord, have mercy on him. And then he says this. He says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. He says, your disciples weren't able, which is fascinating because this is after 
Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 6, where Jesus sent out the disciples, and the scripture says he gave them the authority to cast out demons. And now you've got the disciples. Jesus comes down from the mountain and he sees this argument, and it's the scribes and the disciples arguing and debating and fighting about why they could not cast out this demon. So what happened? What happened between Mark chapter six and Mark nine and Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew 17? Because chapters before Jesus sent them out and they had the power to heal and to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. And it happened. So what's going on here? And look at Jesus's response. He says uh, in verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, this is a strong statement for Jesus to say, you're faithless and you're twisted. And how long do I have to be here? He's really, really irritated at their lack of faith. The word faithless there means unbelieving or not believing. It means unfaithful. And you see Jesus say, how long am I to be with you? And it's interesting that he calls them faithless, so they're not believing. But then the word twisted there is not actually an adjective. We would call it an adjective in our English language. Um, But when Matthew wrote this, it's actually a verb. It's you're faithless, you're not believing, and you have been twisted. You have been deceived. You have been made crooked. So it's essentially, this has happened to you. Because of our sin, because of our unbelief, because of our often bent in our hearts to forget the gospel, to forget the goodness of God. So many of us fall into not believing and being unfaithful. And he says this, you faithless and twisted generation. And I would venture to say just from this text that Jesus just isn't condemning the disciples and he's not just condemning the scribes. In fact, um, Mark in the, in the gospel of Mark, the word uh, generation there is used five different times. And every time it's used, it's referring to um, all of Israel. And what he's saying here is that you still don't believe. And I, I want you to see why Jesus would be so frustrated. He was, he was not just condemning the disciples or the scribes who were also held to the Jewish faith, trusted in Yahweh, had fallen into being twisted and some deception along the way. But by this time in Jesus' ministry, he had already calmed storms. He had already fed thousands of people. He had already healed the sick. He had already caused the blind to see. And he had already raised two people from the dead. And Jesus comes down the mountain and he sees his followers and scribes, and just knowing that this is kind of the state of all of Israel, arguing about why they couldn't heal someone when the only one who had shown and actually has the power to heal was not asked to do a single thing. You can see why he'd get a little frustrated, right? I've shown you over and over again, my heart is to heal, I long to heal, I long to be with sinners, I love to forgive sin, I love to to preach the good news that I'm here, I'm the king, repent and believe in me, and you will be made righteous and holy. He longs to do all of those things. Raise two people from the dead, 
And he comes down the mountain and they're over here thinking they're gonna figure it out in their own power. Maybe if we do it this way, this is the traditional Jewish exorcism and the disciples are going, no, we know how to do it. We've done it before. We can do this. We can handle this. And now they're fighting about who's gonna do it and why they can't do it. And Jesus is going, I'm the one that has the power to do this. And no one is praying to me. No one is seeking me. No one is asking me. And he calls them out and he says, you're not believing. And the reason we're preaching on this this morning is because our probably number one barrier to our own prayer life is unbelief. The number one thing that will stop you or prevent you or keep you from praying is unbelief. And we'll see here that the disciples' belief was actually on themselves, that it was self-reliance that they were banking on. And the number one thing that will keep you from praying is self-reliance. And for some of you, if I can just kind of verbalize where I've been in my prayer life, there's been seasons where it's, I feel like nothing's getting accomplished. I feel like I'm pouring my heart out to God and I don't know what's happening. There are other times where I have this religious spirit and I'm like, hey, if God ordains all things, it's all gonna come to pass anyways, why do I even need to pray? If he's already written the story from the beginning to the end, why do I even need to talk to him? Others, I, I, I'm sitting here last night. I literally set my, I've got my watch on and I'm going, I'm going to pray uninterrupted, focused prayer for 20 minutes. And as soon as you say that, you're like inviting the, the target on your back, right? And just, if, if you've ever been there, 30 seconds in, I'm already thinking about something else. I'm going, wait, what am I doing? Like, get back to praying. And I pray, you know, for my, for tomorrow, for today, for my, child on the way, for my wife, for our church, for you, for the globe, and like three minutes had gone by. And I'm like, in the three minutes, I'd already been distracted 12 times. And some of you, that's your struggle too. I get in there and I wrestle, and, and here's why the enemy would want so much more for you than for you to come to the God of the universe who has the power to do more in an instant than you and I could ever do in a lifetime and to pray and to spend moments with him because that God longs to hear your prayers and he longs to grant your requests. He longs to give good gifts to his children. And we're not gonna go full crazy this morning and say that he's just gonna give you whatever you want. In fact, that passage in Mark and this passage where nothing will be impossible to you is probably one of the most misinterpreted and abused passages in all of scripture. That if you just have enough faith, you can make happen whatever you want to happen. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the enemy would want nothing more for our church to be a group of believers who pray. For you as parents to be a group of, to be a united front who pray together for the salvation of your children, for the safety and the protection of your marriage. The enemy would want nothing more. The enemy would rather have you trust in yourself and your priorities and your abilities and your skills than for you and your wife to get on a knee together and pray to the God of the universe for his help and his power and his protection. He would much rather you depend on yourself, trust in yourself, try to resist temptation on your own, try to save your children on your own, which you don't have the power to do, he would much rather convince you that you can just put your faith in yourself. He would. And this is why prayer is a struggle. The battle is prayer. 
It's belief and unbelief. The battle is fought in prayer. And we see this. Jesus is inviting this man to show up and and to pour out his heart. And he says, hey, your disciples couldn't do it. Jesus says, bring them to me. And this is what Jesus does in verse 18. It says, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And Mark tells us that as soon as the demon saw Jesus, it started convulsing the boy and making him foam at the mouth. And the demon does what all demons do when they start seeing Jesus. They break out in hopeless defiance, trying to do whatever they can to escape Jesus's power, moving in on them with a quickness. And they pull out all the stops. And what does Jesus do? He speaks to the man. And I love how Mark puts it. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Imagine the father hearing Jesus say that to the demon inside his own son. Come out and never enter him again. And Jesus rebukes the demon and Matthew tells us it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. The Greek says from that very hour, And for the rest of his life, the demon never entered that boy again. And Jesus is able to, in an instant, heal this man. Power over creation, power over the demons, power over all things. In him, he rules all things, as Hebrews 1 says, and in him all things hold together. And you see Jesus speak, and the demon's gone. And the disciples have an issue, not with what Jesus did, But now they've got to figure out and reconcile, okay, what happened with us? So they pull him aside in verse 19. Mark tells us that they were in a house, but they came to Jesus privately and they said, why could we not cast it out? And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And here's Jesus's response. Your faith is little. Now let's camp out here for a minute. Because like I said, the last thing I want you to believe is that because if somebody in your family gets sick, if somebody passes away, we're navigating that in our family right now with my grandfather, that we're praying for him. And the last thing I want you to to believe is the lie that if you have enough faith, you can determine the outcome. That's not what this passage is teaching. Because the flip side of that is equally as dangerous. That if they don't get healed, if they don't recover, if the marriage doesn't get fixed, if the wayward child doesn't come home, that it's because you didn't have enough faith. If only you would have had a little more faith, then the outcome would have happened. I can't think of a more terrible burden and a bigger lie that the enemy would want you to believe. That is a false teaching, that is health, wealth, prosperity gospel, that's you can determine your own destiny, you can manifest things, you can pray and make it happen, and that is not biblical whatsoever. So what does Jesus mean when he says, your faith is little? He says, your faith is small. So what does he mean? Here's what I see from the text. Notice this. And I'll give you a couple reasons why I think this. But notice this. Jesus says your faith is, he says you have little faith. And then he says, if you would have faith 
He doesn't say the size of a mountain. He doesn't say the size of a skyscraper. He says, hey, your faith is small. And if you would just have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. Why in the world would Jesus, and he's using hyperbole, by the way, he's using strong language to communicate a point, which we'll talk about in just a second. But why would Jesus say your faith is too small? And if you had faith about this big, is he really saying that their faith was smaller than that? Or is he saying that their faith is small, not because of the size or the quantity, the faith, their faith is little because of where they placed it. It's not a quantity thing. If you would just have a little more, if you would just believe a little harder, if you would just pray a little longer, if you would just believe a little more, if your belief meter would just go up a little bit, their faith was not small because of the, the size of it. It was small because of the location of it. What are they doing? They're huddling around their buddies and scribes and trying to figure out how they can do it in their own power. That's why their faith is little. Where is their belief? In themselves. That's where it is. Why were they not praying? Because they did not have faith. Where was their faith? It was placed in themselves. What's gonna stop all of us from praying is when we rely on our own abilities. When we trust in our own energy, our own skills, our own knowledge, our own wisdom. When you trust in your own routine. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if you neglect the God of the universe and say, hey God, I've got this figured out. We know how to raise our children. We know how to have a healthy relationship. We know how to make sure that he comes to a knowledge of the gospel. We've got this covered. Then you have very little faith, is what Jesus is saying, is what Matthew is saying. That if a lack of prayer is the symptom, then the sickness or the root cause is a lack of faith. That if we truly believed that Jesus is who he says he is, that he longs to hear our prayers, that he can do more in a moment than we can do in a lifetime, then the natural response will be us running to him in prayer, not as our last resort, but our first response. And there's a couple reasons why I think this were true. Because if Jesus was saying, if you just had a little more faith, then you'd be able to do this. You'd be able to move this mountain. What about Paul? Second Corinthians. Paul prays three times. Jesus, will you remove this thorn? Now, would, our, would we look at that and say, Paul didn't have enough faith? If only Paul had enough faith, then he would have been able to remove his own thorn. No, because that's not what this passage is teaching. It's the object of his faith that causes it to be great. And Jesus is saying, if you have a mustard seed size faith in me, not in your abilities, not in your own effort, not in your own skills, your own wisdom, if you put an ounce of faith in me, then I'll use my power to move the mountains. But he's not promising that every single thing you ask for is going to happen. And we'll address that as we close. But the same goes for Jesus in the garden, praying to the Father, Lord, take this cup from me. Would we look at that and say, if only Jesus had enough faith? Jesus didn't have enough faith. If he had enough faith, the Father would have answered his request and he would have dodged the cross. No, Jesus had perfect faith. 
So this passage isn't teaching that if you just believe hard enough, then whatever you ask for is going to happen. Jesus is speaking hyperbole here. He's using strong language to make this point that if you put an ounce of faith in me, you are going to see amazing things happen. You are going to see the impossible be made possible. The greatest of these is the fact that you and I as sinners can dwell with a holy God. That's making the impossible possible. How in the world can you and I have a, begin to have a relationship with the God of the universe? Us and our sin, our trial, our struggle, our evil, our wickedness, how can we even know God? It's the object of our faith, not the amount of your faith, not the size, but it's where you place it. Their faith was misplaced and it was, in, it was placed in themselves. And Jesus makes the connection between a lack of prayer and a lack of faith. The number one sign that your trust is in the Lord and not in yourself is you will run to the Lord in prayer and ask him to move. At your workplace, in your family, in your marriage, if we truly believe that God has infinitely more power than we do, then our only response will be running to him in prayer. Before we labor, before we invest, before we try. And so many times, God has to show us this lesson the hard way. Because there are moments in this life where there's no amount of human skill or ability or wisdom that can make your mountain go away. If it's a cancer diagnosis, if it's a tragedy, and I'm embarrassed to tell you how many times I've had to get to that moment before I finally prayed. Hey God, this is one of those that I can't handle. I'm gonna ask you to handle this one. And God's saying, I long to handle all of them. In fact, you haven't been handling any of them. It's been me working my sovereign will and plan and my decree in your life despite you coming to me because I'm good and I'm gracious and I'm merciful and I love you. So run to me with those things. From the trivial to the mountain, run to him with those things, church. Let's be a people who have enough faith to believe that God can move mountains. And I just wanna address the whole move mountains thing. If that were literally true, then we've got a problem. Because if that's true, then nobody in the history of the world apart from Jesus has faith because I've yet to see a mountain pick up and move and relocate. He was using hyperbole. He wasn't talking literally there. But he did come to move mountains. And hear me this morning. Jesus did not come to change our geography. He came to move the mountain of sin in your life. He came to move the mountain of unbelief in your life. He came to move the mountain of the temptation that you've been battling for weeks and months and years and can't seem to overcome. He came to move that mountain. And you can try with your might, with your ability, with your skill, with your wisdom, and you will never be able to do it apart from the power of God and the spirit of God working in your life. You and I cannot do a single thing that will count for eternity without the power of God working in and through us. We're finite human beings, wandering hearts all the time. And sanctification is the prayer that the Father prayed. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the daily struggle. You wanna know what the struggle is in prayer? It's Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. Lord, in this area of my life, I believe you. I have to believe you, I have to trust you. I can't do anything 
But God, help my unbelief in this area where I'm totally neglecting you and trying to do it on my own. And you wanna know what sanctification looks like? Repentance and faith. Lord, here I go again. I forgot to put my trust in you. I thought I could handle it on my own. Forgive me for putting my faith in myself. I repent of that and I put my faith in you. I give my finances back to you. I give my children back to you. It's repentance and faith over and over again. Lord, I'm believing here, but my heart wanders, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Stop letting me wander from this and trusting in myself. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you welcome me back. I repent. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief in this area of my life. And that will be the battle that you and I fight until Jesus Christ returns. Because every day, our hearts are prone to wander. We're so prone to trust in money in the bank and trust in health and trust in security, trust in control. The greatest lie we believe is that you and I are in control of things. But boy, do we love to trust in it. Hey, kids are doing okay, kids are healthy, money's coming in, we can coast. And what are we doing? We're trusting in ourselves. And someone who's doing that won't run to the Lord in prayer. We won't. But God in his grace always welcomes us in. And your verse, does anyone in Matthew have a verse 21? Do you have a verse 21 in Matthew? Some Bibles don't. It's a good thing if your Bible doesn't. If it does, it's not a bad thing either. It should be like in parentheses or brackets or something like that. All that means is that uh, Matthew 21 in brackets, or 1721 says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And the reason it's in brackets there is because it's not in the earliest of manuscripts. And if you come back in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about all of those things so that you can trust it. But it's okay that it's in there because it's definitely in Mark's from the earliest of manuscripts. So editors along the way have put it in there, but they want you to know that it wasn't in the earliest, so it should be in parentheses or brackets or those kind of things. But Mark tells us, and it's for sure there in Mark 9, 29, he says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The implication there is they had not prayed to ask God for his power to cast this out. Hey, your lack of faith showed up in a lack of prayer. You were self-reliant. You thought you could do this on your own, and you didn't come to me, the one who has the power to remove the demon at the very sentence of my voice. I can say it and it will be done. Everything that the Lord has decreed will come to pass. And here's the beauty of the gospel, is that this is a picture of us. Is that you and I are the boy trapped in darkness. And Jesus Christ has come and he's come to remove a mountain. And you all might not be struggling with seizures, but we have a bigger mountain than just physical ailments, and it's our sin. And the God of glory stepped out of heaven and came down, and if you are in Christ, it is because he has spoken. His spirit has moved. The winds have blown, as John 3 says, and he has brought you to new life. He rescued you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his glorious son. 2 Corinthians 4. In their case, the God of this world, this is us apart from Christ, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what has God done? Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The greatest mountain has been moved if you're in Christ. He did not come to fix our geography. He came to move greater mountains 
than physical mountains. And it's the mountain of sin that separates you from a holy God. And how did he do it? He stepped out of the glory of the transfiguration, the glory of heaven, and came down to earth and took on your sin in his own life. He lived a righteous life in your place and he died to pay for your penalty of your sin. And by the good news of the gospel, by his grace, as a gift, you can have his holiness and his righteousness and your sin can be cast as far as the east is from the west. And you can have new life in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And now by God's grace, he has given us the power to be a part of that mission to rescue others from the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we're not gonna do it by our own might, by our own power, by our own skills, by my own oratory excellence and my incredible sermons. I've had some stinkers in the name of the Lord too. It's not gonna happen that way. How's it gonna happen? When you and I drop to our knees and we pray for those in our family that don't know the Lord. When we pray for God, to awaken people to new life in this service. When we pray for our children to come to know the Lord at a young age, that's what's going to do it. We can toil, we can strive, we can do whatever we want. But if God's power isn't working, then we do it in vain. You can toil as a parent and you can strive. Teenagers, you can toil and strive, but if you are not inviting the Lord to work in your life in prayer, then you do it in vain. The only thing that you and I could ever do that will last and make an eternal significant difference is by the power of God working in and through us. Church, we have to, we must be a church, a people of believers, not an organization, but a people that come to the Lord in prayer for our families, for ourselves, for one another on a regular basis. You know what my marriage needs? You know what your family needs? They need a mom or a dad who doesn't have it all figured out, who doesn't have infinite wisdom, but who spends regular time on their knees with the Lord in prayer. That's what they need. They don't need you to have all the answers. They need you to humble yourself, pray to the Lord, and invite his power to work in you to show the gospel to your family and to your coworkers and to your neighbors. That's what this church needs. That's what our families need. That's what my wife needs from me. It's not to be the end all be all husband, but to spend time with the Lord in prayer and to live and work and love her from his strength and from his love. Does that make sense? It's fascinating that, um, and I'll close with this. If you think about the... Um, the book of Acts. Um, we don't have time to look at every moment in the book of Acts, but the book of Acts is known for the book where the Spirit of God just unleashes its power all over Asia Minor and to the ends of the earth. I mean, it starts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and eventually goes to the ends of the earth by the time the book of Acts is finished. And what's so fascinating about that is as you read the book of Acts, notice what's right alongside the Spirit moving every single time. I'll just read you a couple. Acts 1, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Acts 3, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour to pray. 
Acts 4, when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts 6, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts 7, as Stephen is suffering and dying, he looks to the Lord and he prays. Every single chapter, with the exception of I think one or two, I tried to count, that you see the spirit of God being unleashed, it is undergirded with the prayer of the children of God. You don't see the two separated. And if you want to see God work in your marriage, God work in your family, God work in this church, we must be a praying people. There was a pastor in Korea who came to North America and spent some time here. And before he left, of course, these prideful American churchgoers had to ask him, hey, what do you think about the church in America? What do you think about the American church? You know what his response was? He said, I am amazed at all the things that the American church can do without God. He said, you've got so much energy, so much excitement, nice graphics, all the things. You do so much, but you don't go to the Lord in prayer. Humble pie that they needed and what we need, what I need. So church, if I could give you a couple of responses, pray confidently. God longs for you to come with your prayers, whether it's trivial, whether it's big, whether it's a mountain, whether it's something small, whatever it is, he longs to hear from you. Bring all your requests to him. Pray confidently and pray boldly, knowing that he longs to grant your requests. And pray humbly, knowing that God doesn't promise he's gonna give you all that you ask for. He's God, we are not. He's infinite, we're not. He's all-knowing, we are not. I praise God that he did not give me all the requests that I prayed for throughout my life. He's infinite, we're not. He knows more than we do. But pray confidently, pray boldly, but pray humbly. And then lastly, pray contently, knowing that even if God doesn't answer that prayer, that his grace is sufficient for you. That even in God's nose, he says, hey, I'm gonna give you the grace to get through this. I've planned this, I'm with you. This is what's best. Although you can't see it, although it doesn't seem that way, I'm gonna give you the grace to get through every moment of every day and navigate the pain of this life. And the good news of the gospel is I came to redeem it and to fix it and to, to, to heal it. And it's ultimately not gonna be in this moment, but it's gonna be through the salvation in Christ and ultimately when he returns, when everything is fixed. So pray confidently, pray boldly, run to him. You can approach the throne as we read in Hebrews. We can run boldly to the throne, but pray humbly and pray contently, knowing that the greatest prize is not a change in our earthly circumstances, that the greatest prize and the greatest treasure is Christ himself. And if we have him, regardless of how God answers our prayer, according to his sovereign will, we've got enough grace to get through. He's moved the greatest mountain in our lives. And if he can do that, he can do anything. So church, let's be a praying people. Amen. Let me pray, and then we'll respond and sing. And uh, Mr. Don will come up and give us our benediction for the morning. So let me pray as the band comes out, and we'll respond in a song and do a benediction and then uh, dismiss. Father, we love you. God, I pray that we would be a people of prayer. And God, that starts with me. Um, God, I pray. Um, it's not glamorous. It's not exciting. In fact, it's almost somewhat of a struggle to enter into prayer, knowing that it's gonna be hard. But God, the battle is fought and won in prayer. It really is. God, prayer is not 
about us getting from your hand what we want. God, it's really about us being changed by you. God, it's about you softening our hearts, you reminding us that you're sovereign, that you're good, that you love us. You've given us your son. And God, changing us to be able to trust you. Not trust in ourselves, not trust in what we can see, but to trust in you. That what you've planned is good. And God, you ordain the ends, but you also ordain the means. You've already determined all the ends, but you determine the means. And the means by which you want to grant our request is that your children come to you and pray. So God, help us to be a church that fights the battle in prayer for ourselves, for our marriages, for our children, for this community, and for one another. To the glory of your name alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.